Hey everyone, welcome to a casual episode of When the Music Stops. Today I am joined by Frank, who is an R Butcoin member for almost a decade. We have a pretty casual and open conversation about MicroStrategy, a company run by Michael Saylor that has taken a very interesting position by holding more Bitcoin than any company in the world, I believe. Um, currently, that's about half a percent of the total circulating Bitcoin supply. By no means is Frank an expert in any way. These, this, this conversation is purely a casual one between myself and someone from the R Butcoin community. Uh, I would like to make a couple of corrections uh, that we only figured out in post. These are very minor corrections, but nevertheless, I'll say them now. At some point, uh, Frank mentions that MSTR... Uh, that's MicroStrategy had spent uh, $425 million in their first purchase of Bitcoin. The correct number is $475 million. Later, he says that the bonds had a uh, guaranteed share price of $1,432 per share. Excuse me, he said $432. He meant $1,432. And lastly, um, there's a point where he describes uh, people who buy puts as being very bullish on Bitcoin, but obviously what he meant to say was bearish. Um, again, small corrections. I also want to point out that the previous episode with David Gerard, I uh, unfortunately had made the pretty serious mistake of calling him a New York Times bestseller. He immediately corrected me and said that he is not a New York Times bestseller. He is simply a best-selling author. Um, the number of cop, the, the number of books he sold is incredibly uncommon for someone who is self-published and in that regard he is a bestseller a new york times bestseller is a very narrow and specific um set of of rules to to qualify for that um and so being kind of an idiot i just heard bestseller and immediately said new york times bestseller so yeah we're gonna have the regular episode published tomorrow every wednesday uh, tomorrow we're going to have a, the uh, uh, Chris uh, Dupress, I believe is his name. He is the person who was sued by the Chia Network. He's going to talk about his entire story. We're going to get a real uh, second viewpoint on the entire Chia debacle before we move on to more Tether-related stuff. And then, of course, NFTs with Amy Castor. I cannot stress how excited I am to talk to Amy, to Amy Castor because she uh, has some... Just absolutely fantastic journalistic work. And so, yeah, I hope you guys find this interesting. So, enjoy. Frank, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Frank, tell the listeners who you are and sort of how we, you know, got to talking about MicroStrategy. So, I've been uh, a crypto news enthusiast for a long time. I found out about it back in... Uh, about 2011, and uh, at the time, this was like a you know shiny new thing that uh, it seems like some smart people had invented a, a new form of digital money from the ground up, and it seemed very exciting. And uh, I almost uh, got on the hype train and put money into buying crypto through uh, Mt. Gox at the time. So uh, the exchange that was uh, started off as Magic the Gathering online exchange, but then they started trading Bitcoin. Um, but that process was actually uh, quite finicky back then. And so I almost got 
into uh, actually buying some Bitcoin off of the exchange and sending the money. But uh, I got as far as to print the uh, banking information, then decided, you know, I'm a young guy with not a lot of money. This seems kind of a stupid thing to do. And so I held back. And soon uh, after, they started having you know, one scandal after another. And after that, it just seemed to me that crypto seemed like this very, you know, I was very lucky to have not gotten into it. And it seemed like a very silly thing. And uh, a little while after I found out about Buttcoin, so I'd been kind of hanging around there, Art Buttcoin, which is a community on Reddit full of uh, Bitcoin and crypto skeptics. And so I've just been watching crypto and crypto related news ever since uh, off and on. One kind of immediate response someone might have is, man, you were so close to becoming a billionaire. <laughs> you know, had you just bought all those you know, cryptos really early on, you would have had so much money. But I think a more grounded sort of reflection on history is that you actually would have probably lost your money in one of the 82 different ways that people lost their money from 2011 until until the current day. In your case, it was Mt. Gox. That was kind of the most immediate right. um, loss. So how do you reflect on that, just your situation of like almost being there, not getting in, and then watching the community grow as much as it, as it, as it has? So I... I think uh, in the past, I you know did feel like, oh, no, I did miss out. But given just how many crashes and scandals there have been, I feel like I'm not smart enough to have been able to avoid all that. So I, I feel like the most likely scenario, if I had gone through with it, is that uh, a few years later, I would have lost all of my money on Knockox and uh, would be kicking myself in a whole other way. So I think it's a very grounded perspective because of course a lot of people who get into crypto think they can beat the system they can beat the market they can beat the exchanges they can beat the other traders a more science-based perspective would tell you that typically uh you can't right uh beat the system at, at right. best you can get lucky which is not the same as, as 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 you know beating a system it's just that you're the one that got the lottery ticket that happens to be right it's still not smart to play yeah. the lottery so uh you know there's there's kind of two related uh points on that one is uh most of the news that you hear from people who are successes uh you know that's kind of self-selecting you know people who fail usually don't post as hard boasting about their winnings so there is this kind of survivor uh, bias uh, for people who have made it in crypto and secondly, uh, you know, one of the big draws for Bitcoin starting off was that you're supposed to be able to be your own bank. And the downside of that that a lot of people probably don't think about is that being your own bank means being your own bank security. And that's really, really hard. And, uh, you know, so many people have lost their money um, just through the first mistake they made. And there's no turning back. Uh, I've kind of decided to stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it be your own bank is as smart as be your own carpenter, be your own plumber, be your own auto mechanic. To some extent, a couple people might be able to do a couple of those things. But if you really try to honestly be your own everything, you're, 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 you're going yeah. to, you're going to fail. The, the partition of labor makes a lot of sense. Uh, you want to have financial professionals uh, managing your money. You don't want to be figuring out how equities and international markets work as well as like the legal ramifications and the tax ramifications but that doesn't prevent a lot of young people from kind of running into crypto and shouting be your own bank 
it's it's a very appealing message, you know, taking charge of your own money, uh, not letting the man take a, a cut through taxes or uh, you know ruining you with investments that you don't understand. You're controlling everything that you're doing. But uh, you know, because crypto is supposed to be trustless, that means there is no central authority to help you out if things go wrong. And you know, so many things have gone wrong in so many ways. No, absolutely. So when did you find our Butcoin? I, I think basically after the first major scandal that, um, that Mt. Gox had that I knew of, which was a hacker managed to get access to coins that they weren't supposed to and set up this huge sell order that managed to crash the prices of Bitcoin overnight. And that was such interesting news that I ended up uh, you know, just trying to find out more about it. And I think that's how I first found out about the Bitcoin community on Reddit. And so you're saying you were, you were there kind of like 2012? Um, I, I think the hack happened in 2013. So it might've been around there and we a little later. Um, it's been so long now that I don't, you know, I honestly can't pinpoint exactly when, but that's my, my best guess. How do you feel our Bitcoin has changed since you, you first, you know, became like a kind of observer? I think in the beginning, because a lot of people who were even enthusiasts about uh, Bitcoin didn't really take it too seriously, it was this like kind of fun, cool thing. That attitude uh, also uh, permeated the skeptic community. So like both sides didn't really seem to take it all that seriously. Uh, you know, it was like if somebody messed up, like uh, it was funny. But the, the person who screwed up probably did it on a very small scale. So there were, uh, you know, like jokes about, uh, have you tried real money as the new coin? Uh, that <laughs> kind of thing back in the day. Uh, but as crypto has gotten bigger and bigger and has uh, gotten, you know, more people ensnared in its um, this kind of utopian vision and uh, has seen so much uh, money from people who can't afford it getting poured into it, I think um, you can kind of sense this frustration that like a lot of this stuff is still funny, but overall it's kind of stopped being, you know, something that you can just laugh at. Like too many people are getting hurt. So uh, I think for people who have been on there for a long time, it is kind of frustrating to see that like, you know, they're doing, uh, the crypto space is doing a speed run through, um, modern economics in the span of a few years and they're hitting every single road bump that it has uh traditional finance has overcome and it's still going so that that tone of like oh, okay this is just ridiculous and funny to like why is this giant scam still going on and has only gotten bigger over time has kind of changed the tone a little bit i think you know if you ever meet someone who genuinely had bitcoin pre-2013 like who really had it there are, two, I think, two kinds of people. The first kind is like some sort of computer scientist, libertarian, internet, something or other, which is quite small. The larger group were people that just wanted to buy some drugs on, on the Silk Road. And I've met those people, and every time I talk to them about having Bitcoin in those days, they say very much what you said, which is they never took it seriously. There was ever this like idea that this is the currency, this is better than gold, this is a more solid value, this is the thing that uh, the society will be built on. It was just like, look, this is just a fucking Chuck E. Cheese token that I can send to a guy anonymously, so they thought, on the internet to buy drugs. 
I would never invest in this, you know, like to them, yeah, it exactly. was, it was, it would be such a silly thing to say that out loud, um, to invest. And to me, it's funny because that is what Bitcoin is, right? And they are, they are the community. And, um, and now we're talking amidst the recent news that El Salvador, one of the strongest, most prosperous countries with the most serious and democratic politicians <laughs> has, has decided to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Right. Which is quite uh, kind of frightening because El Salvador uses uh, U.S. dollars as their day-to-day uh, -day currency. And if they accept uh, Bitcoins as legal tender, then there is this unfiltered bridge between USD and Bitcoin. And I'm sure, you know, the U.S. government isn't happy about that. And Probably other uh, international financial institutions are not happy about that either. From given that you know people still use Bitcoin to buy drugs and do other nefarious things. Well, it's it's just it's funny because it's unclear where there's utility apart from buying the drugs. Right. Right. Th th that's what's weird, and I think this is what the our Bitcoin message really is: is like where is the utility? Like we've been here since the drug days, and that was a fun little experiment. And since then, we haven't seen that utility, and it's hard for me to argue with that. Right. And and El Salvador, you know, they have a lot of people who are genuinely unbanked, but I don't really understand how Bitcoin is supposed to ever solve that, especially given their transaction fees uh, and the need for infrastructure to even make it work. It's such an untenable proposition to suggest that the, peop the six million very poor people of El Salvador... Uh, sorry, minus the political elite who are doing quite well. Um, but other than those uh, 82 uh, political elite members, the 6 million very poor residents of El Salvador, to say that they're going to be, you know, using their, their mobile phones with Electrum wallet and downloading SPV proofs and sending Bitcoin and spending 40 US dollars per transaction and then mixing their coins with fancy software so that all of the rest of the world and their neighbor can't track every transaction they're engaged in at the same time as dealing with a currency that could go up or down 20% in a day, you know, it's a completely non-starter. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally right. insane. At best, it appears that maybe El Salvador has this idea that if they make it like, like legal tender, that it will take all of that new crypto money. It'll persuade it to come to El Salvador and maybe give it a tiny boost to the economy that, that that's the best case scenario where none of the the actual locals accept it it's just that a few people accept it and therefore when you go to el salvador and you've got a ton of bitcoin you can buy property and start a business and bring that wealth and, and also not get charged on capital gains tax for your bitcoin gains i think that was one of the other you know appealing things for moving crypto to el salvador but yeah i don't really see how it can help uh people who actually need to be helped so it's all very strange. It's also clear that El Salvador is a very weak economy. In total, the in in you know the gross domestic product in purchasing power parity in two thousand eight was estimated at twenty six billion dollars. That's not a lot of money for an entire country. Um, um, we would call in the modern day we would call that uh, forty percent of a single tether. Is, is the size <laughs> right. of El Salvador. <laughs> that, that's, that's kind of incredible when you put it like that, yeah. 
So two and a half of the entire gross domestic product, which means all of the transactions between individuals in El Salvador that are measured by the government, two and a half of those, if you took all of the money, which you couldn't because it's money going from one seller to a buyer, so you can only take the taxes. But if you manage to take all of that money times two and a half, that's what Tether has backing it, allegedly. Right. And uh, I, I, I'm glad that more people seem to be talking about Tether and it's getting a bit more press exposure. But, uh, you know, previously you'd asked, like, uh, what changed over uh, our Bitcoin over time? I think, um, you know, that's a good example. Like, people were calling out Tether when it was in the hundreds of millions, when it was in the one to two billions. And it just started going parabolic this year. And we're at now 60 billion plus? 63 billion. Right. And, uh, you know, all these new uh, stable coins have also come out. So USDC is not that far behind now. So it's just incredible to see. Like, sometimes it does, as a crypto skeptic, feel like you're kind of banging your head against the wall because we knew this was unsustainable and fraud-filled and dumb back in the days when it was a billion. Now it's gone 60 times and people are still pouring money into crypto. Like, why? (laughs) Yeah, so... It, it, it's the fastest way to get yourself into a mental asylum is to study cryptocurrency as an economist or a computer scientist and genuinely try to piece together what's going on and and make sense of everything um, w- without just joining the cult. And, and that's really it, right? You, you have to right. join the cult if you're going to explain this. So the reason why we're talking right now is because there's another interesting thing that's happening at the same time as, as crypto is pumping and Bitcoin is pumping and El Salvador and all that. And that's the case of a company like MicroStrategy. Just for the audience, like what's going on with MicroStrategy? What is that? What are they doing? Uh, okay, so uh, MicroStrategy is a business intelligence company that's been around for uh, a really long time. So they were founded in 1989 by Michael Saylor. Um, and they went public uh, right around the time of the uh, tech boom in 98. And so their product is business intelligence software, which is software that allows businesses to uh, find uh, useful metrics, uh, useful information about their own organization. So things like productivity, uh, inventory, cash flow uh, to you know, the software will visualize it and pre- present, uh, you know, relationships between data that managers might not realize. So all of this could be potentially very useful for businesses, but none of it has anything to do with uh, blockchain or crypto. And so by 2020, MicroStrategy had been this uh, middling very mediocre business intelligence company that had a market cap of about $907 million, but they were sitting on uh, over $500 million of cash. And I guess they couldn't figure out a better way to spend it uh, besides using half of it in the stock buyback and then using the remainder $250 million to buy Bitcoins as a hedge against inflation. And ever since then, they have just continued on this path of buying more and more Bitcoin because Michael Saylor has become a true believer uh, in Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation and as digital gold and has gone full-time Bitcoin evangelist. 
And now their Bitcoin holdings are actually many times larger than you know, the underlying business of the company. So that, that's absolutely, I mean, crazy. You know, f for context, right, when, when, when we think about companies, we think about an entity that has some sort of, you know, productive assets, you know, computers, buildings, resources, it hires employees, it has a revenue stream. That's what we think about when we think of a, of a company. When we think of something like an ETF, right, we, we think of something different. You know, you know, if you have a gold ETF, it's not a company, it's just an exchange traded fund. It's just a, um, some sort of company might um, have custody over a ton of gold and you're buying that ETF to get exposure to gold or you're buying an ETF to get exposure to other stocks. But the creator of the ETF is not themselves a, a company because they're not, again, creating that revenue. They're just, they're just creating a portfolio here. Right. But in, in this case, you've got a weird blurred line because you have a company that took its assets and then bought a very volatile, I guess, crypto commodity, right? Yes. So they bought a bunch of Bitcoin with their own money while Bitcoin was going through the late 2020 and uh, 2021 bit, uh, bull run. So they seem to have done really well with this initial investment. And so they started issuing bonds uh, to borrow more money to keep buying Bitcoin and has now kind of turned into basically a Bitcoin exchange traded fund with a computer business on the side. Yeah, so just, just for context, how much Bitcoin are we talking about here? So I think in total they have over $2.21 billion. Uh, so they spent that amount of money in Bitcoin and they bought, uh, I think, 95,000 Bitcoin, uh, which... I, I guess the market price changes all the time, but yeah, they spent over $2.2 billion, uh, mostly from borrowed money to buy Bitcoin. They spent 2.2 billion US dollars of borrowed money to get a hold of, and I, and I have it here in, in this website, and anyone can check this on. It's called BitcoinTreasuryReserve.com. Uh, that is certainly a, a good website to get a sense of how many other companies are also holding Bitcoin uh, assets as a treasury asset. So. Uh, MicroStrategy is by far the largest. I think the second largest is uh, Tesla right now. So if you're interested in which other companies are holding crypto, and if you're a potential investor in these companies, you know, using that as a, a gauge of how risky it is, uh, I, I think that's an excellent site. Right. Now, just to be clear, when you go on these sites and you're trying to find out who holds the most Bitcoin, don't be confused by an ETF and a company. Because again, an ETF is just holding Bitcoin for others to invest in. Exactly. They're not themselves exposed to the Bitcoin because they're just holding it so that someone can have, uh, you know, $50 or $100 worth of Bitcoin in their TFSA or their, um, their uh, um, what's it called, IRA, whatever it is in the United States that, you know, where you can invest in stocks, you can buy ETFs. So now you can get exposure to something like Bitcoin through these things. But with MicroStrategy, this is actually a company just like Tesla. MicroStrategy has the most Bitcoin out of anyone else in the world. In fact, so they have 91,000 Bitcoin. I see here 0.43%. What does that represent, that number, 0.43%? Uh, is that the total number of Bitcoin? I'm not. I'm not too sure. Actually. I think so. I mean, so I see here that the total number of Bitcoin held by all of these companies 
is 1.3 million, which does in fact make 6% of the total supply. Half a percent, right. is that, does, does that sound right? Uh, you know what, it does sound right because there's 18 million Bitcoins and this is 90,000. So yeah, that's exactly it. It's about, they own half, almost half a percent of all Bitcoin in existence. They own a single company. And so, and, and what you're saying now, so like I, I see here the value, today's value of Bitcoin in their holdings is 3.3 billion. Right. L- looks like they got in uh, at, at the right time, although they have so much Bitcoin, many will argue there's no way they can liquidate that at today's price. There's just absolutely no way with the slippage and the panic that will happen if Michael Saylor switches to a different religion, it will not work out well uh, for them at all. So so that's actually interesting. Uh, so firstly, that number is going to go up very soon because uh, I guess Michael Saylor is a, is a betting man and he has uh, recently had his company issue another 500 million in bonds, which he is going to pour into Bitcoin as well. So good for him, I guess. Uh, and the second thing is uh, Michael Saylor himself has actually talked about the purchasing process of Bitcoin in interviews and his claim, which you know I don't know if it's verified at all, but his claim is that he has smart people who are doing small trades over time and that when he uh, initially had spent 475 million in his first block of purchases, he didn't move the price up a single dollar, which I don't find that very believable, That, but that's his claim. But also how would he know? I mean, it's so volatile. How do you know if you're the one that moved the price a single dollar? <laughs> right. Or like if, if the price went up 10%, you would just say, well, that's just Bitcoin. Yeah, his, his argument is actually uh, once large companies start adopting Bitcoin en masse, uh, they will actually bring down the volatility. I'm not really sure how that logic works, but you know that's what he believes. Let's take a look at the actual market capitalization of the stock, which is MSTR, it's MicroStrategy. And I'm looking at it right here. I believe it says here $4.96 billion is the market capitalization of his company. So essentially what, what this means, and I'm just gonna do some quick maths here, um, is that 71.7%, 72%, almost three quarters of the value of a micro strategy stock is tied to the fact that, well, three quarters of that value comes from the Bitcoin assets that it holds. Right. And that actually is pretty closely uh, correlated to how the stock price of MicroStrategy moves along with um, the price of Bitcoin. So they are actually on the market out of all the companies that are publicly listed. They are the closest correlated to the price movements of Bitcoin right now. This is you know, more so than Bitcoin mining companies. I mean, it looks like he's filled his company with so much Bitcoins, he's almost made it into a Bitcoin ETF. And of course, the natural like uh, conclusion of that, the, the outcome is that it just goes up and down with Bitcoin almost in, you know, in parity. Yeah, uh, I think their, their uh, correlation is 0.81, uh, the coefficient. So I, I guess a single dollar, I mean, not a single dollar, but like the scale of up and down movement is you know, 81%. Now we're just going to take a little pause from the discussion of, of how he got the Bitcoin, where that money's coming from and what happens if Bitcoin goes down. I know that it almost never happens that Bitcoin goes down, but hypothetically just in a, in, in the Narnia utopia, weird, uh, galaxy world where Bitcoin goes down a lot, what would happen? We're going to go back to micro strategy in the dot com era. 
So just for people who don't know what happened there, how did MicroStrategy do in the dot-com era? So uh, when they were first listed, uh, it was right around the start of the dot-com era. And over the next two years, they posted very profitable uh, earnings. And because all of the dot-com stocks were uh, rising at the same time, their stock prices uh, saw this incredible rise from uh, $7 to, I think, a peak of 333 in March of 2000. And right around the peak, I think five days after the very peak of their stock prices, they announced that actually, uh, for the last two years, we've misstated our income and our earnings. And so we were not a profitable company. We had been losing money for the last two years. And that news caused the prices of MicroStrategy stocks to crash overnight. So they lost over 60% of their value uh, in a single day. Uh, I believe it was 90% in, uh, in a month. And uh, a lot of stockholders, uh, you know, lost their shirts over, over this crash due to what at least the SEC thought was fraud. And just like Bitcoin at the peak, you know, uh, an event happens, it crashes very quickly, and a lot of people ended up losing a lot of money. So for context, um, I see here on uh, on one of these, uh, like I think Yahoo Finance, and I see that because of the stock splits, the, the values are represented differently. If a, if a stock splits, you know, tenfold, then a single stock goes from $100 to $10 or $100 to $1,000, depending on how the stock split works. Right. Um, so here it says that it, went, it rose from $70 to $3,130. Um, so we're looking at almost 100x. So right. uh, almost 100x. And then a dump uh, that's like just parallel. So if you've, it's it's a it's the cleanest example of of what at least looks like a pump and dump. Um, now, what you said about the SEC, they filed their earnings report, which was very bullish for the stock, and then uh, at, at a later point, they they backtracked and then mentioned that all of the previous years they were a tad off, and instead of being highly profitable they were actually losing money. Right, so they were misstating their earnings. Uh, they were doing things like uh, signing contracts right before a quarterly report so that it, you know, it made their earnings look better. They were uh, assigning future potential earnings as current earnings. They were misstating services as sales. And a combination of all of these very sketchy things made the company look much more profitable than it actually was. Now, was Michael Saylor running the company at the time? Uh, he was. So he's been CEO since the very beginning. And in fact, when the SEC finished its investigation, uh, it required the company to pay fines. And because he was the CEO who signed off on the financial statement, he actually had to pay the vast majority of the fines. So I believe it was uh, $11 million, and he had to actually pay out $8.5 million, which was... Know, together was actually the biggest penalty assigned by the SEC to a company for uh, something besides insider trading. Wow! So, um, kind of a shoddy, a little bit of a, little bit of a gray spot in Michael Saylor's track record. But this time, I'm sure it'll be different right. because last time, what happened was there was a tech bubble around a poorly understood technology where he misrepresented uh, an underlying sort of, I guess, revenue stream. 
to to the tune of a, a massive uh, pump and dump, and then the SEC caught on to him. But this time, we're talking about completely different things. So we're going to jump ahead to the present day, where we have a uh, another tech bubble around an asset that's not really well understood. Yeah, so now he's decided to buy Bitcoin. When did he make that decision? Like, I mean, I'm looking at the stock price, and it looks like if you if if you take the years of 2001 until 2019, there's very little going on. Yeah, it, I, I believe it actually dropped to a lowest of 42 cents at the time. I guess you know pre-split, uh, but then has just been hovering uh, at. I guess the equivalent of about, of about $140 ever since until uh, third to fourth quarter of 2020. So two, almost two decades of basically not doing much. So at what point did he make the, the decision to buy Bitcoin and how does a company go about doing that? So in, uh, I believe it was in, I want to say September. I'm not exactly sure, but it was... Uh, near the end of the year in, two, in 2020, uh, he had, uh, I guess COVID was already in full swing. And because of uh, that, the um, I, I, I guess he feared that money was going to uh, hit high inflation rates soon so that it didn't make sense to hold money anymore. And he had a friend in a Bitcoin investment company, uh, I believe by the name of Eric Weiss, who kept trying to convince him that you know, Bitcoin was the future, Bitcoin was a store of value, and eventually he got interested enough to start looking into it himself and became a true believer. And because the structure of MicroStrategy, the company, is rather weird, so Michael Saylor is the CEO, he always has been. Uh, he is the head of, uh, so he's the chairman of the board, uh, and he is also the principal investor because he controls 70% of the voting shares. So basically, you know, whatever he decides uh, everyone else has to kind of follow along in, in MicroStrategy. And once he became convinced that cryptos were a way to hedge against inflation, he actually assigned his own board's uh, homework on crypto. <laughs> okay. So uh, I'm sure the board was excited to go home and, and check out the R Dogecoin subreddit for the latest hot tips on, uh, on SHIB token. Or whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever exciting tech. <laughs> so when was when exactly was the first purchase of bitcoins? I I think it was it was in October um, of twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. Uh, twenty twenty. So this was this was a time when they had uh, about five hundred million dollars uh, and didn't really have any good idea to what to do with it. Um, and I guess couldn't really figure out a way to invest in the company and grow it. So they spent half of that on Bitcoin. Uh, and then very quickly afterwards, they uh, somehow acquired $175 million and also bought more. So by uh, October, they had already bought $475 million in Bitcoins. So how does someone look into the books of a company and when it buys Bitcoin and how it goes about buying Bitcoin. Uh, so all of these are actually, they, the current uh, amount of digital assets that are held by a company are included in their quarterly financial statements. And in MicroStrategy's case, every time they make a significant purchase of Bitcoin, they actually do file a report with the SEC, which you can find on the 
uh, both the SEC's database, but also on their own company's uh, investor relations section. So I, I believe those are 8K uh, form 8Ks, but the quarterly you know, 10Q and 10K uh, reports show their digital asset holdings. This is all transparent. You know, there's no opaqueness here. We actually know that he's buying these bitcoins, that he's holding the bitcoins. He's uh, he's writing these reports for the moment. Yes, there's that might actually be changing soon. I'm not too sure, but it seems like uh, after the latest bond offering, he is going to be starting a subsidiary called Macro Strategies that is going to be holding the company's bitcoins. So. I'm not really sure what the regulations are for that subsidiary reporting to the SEC, like whether any of those reports will be public. So we might actually be uh, not be able to see his company's holdings as clearly going on in the future. Well, let's just hope it doesn't become uh, an El Salvadorian company, um, which would be uh, which would be uh, very unfortunate for transparency. One question I can ask is: Is it so? At first, he's buying bitcoins with cash the company holds. A company can hold cash. That makes sense, right? Right. A company doesn't want to hold too much cash because that means the company doesn't have anywhere to invest it. It's not growing, right? Right. Um, a company is productive. So cash is what you want to use to make something more productive. You don't want to be holding cash. It's unproductive. Right. So at first, he's buying bitcoins with cash that he's holding. Then he starts doing what to get more bitcoin? So I, I'm not exactly sure how the 175 million that was a part of the first major purchase came from. I guess that might have been short-term uh, corporate debt, but uh, very soon afterwards, because his initial purchases were doing so well, uh, he started issuing bonds, and these were uh, convertible senior notes. So that means these bonds are basically loans to the company for a certain number of years. And at the end of that period, the bonds can be converted into shares at pre-agreed upon prices. So if the company's shares are worth a lot more after say five years or six years, when these bonds are uh, due to mature, then whoever does the conversion could stand to make a lot of money. And because the company's stock prices became very tied to the price of Bitcoin, it became appealing that he was using a lot of investor money to invest in Bitcoin. So potentially that means his company stock prices can go up and in five or six years time, whoever holds those bonds can basically make a play on the future price of Bitcoin. So uh, in, let me see, in, I believe it was October, uh, no, December of uh, 2020, he issued $650 million worth of bonds uh, with a 0.75% interest over five years, which is you know, very low. I, I think the Canadian treasury, like five-year treasury interest is actually higher than that right now. For starters, uh, let's talk about this. So senior shares, right? Yeah. When we talk about senior and junior, junior typically implies more risk and senior implies less risk, correct? Uh, so the senior is the who gets to uh, collect on the money in case something happens to the company. So if you're holding senior notes and the company goes bankrupt, uh, any money that is uh, reclaimed from uh, that bankruptcy would go to you first. That's important because what it means is that now if the price of Bitcoin goes too low too quickly, these senior notes uh, can essentially margin call the microstrategy company. 
I'm not too sure about the exact workings on that. I, I know there's some talk about uh, if the price falls too much, then the people who hold the bonds could force a sale. I'm not sure how true that is. Uh, it does mean, though, that because these are senior notes, if something catastrophic happens to the company, the shareholders are probably going to be the last in line to collect uh, any money. So they're probably not going to see anything because anything that is reclaimed from a bankrupt microstrategy would be going to the bondholders first. All right. So he starts essentially issuing bonds, a promise for either more cash or a stock at a pre-agreed upon price. Right. And, and these prices, at least in December, are you know, nowadays still pretty attractive. Uh, so at the time, the price of a MicroStrategy stock was at uh, $289 in December. And so if you're a holder of these bonds, you can redeem them for MicroStrategy stocks at $398. And so they're still trading higher than that. So those bonds are you know, doing pretty well. It's the second time that he does this in February where things are just, you know, kind of really going off the rails. Right, because I'm, I'm looking here in, in December, we're seeing a price of MicroStrategy at about $160. No, actually, even higher, sorry, $285. Yeah, so the prices were, were growing very fast at that time. So that was, uh, I believe when they finished the, the sale, uh, they actually locked in the conversion price. So the exact moment when they... Uh, completed the bond sale, I, their stock prices were trading at 289 and uh, the conversion price had a 37.5% premium, so you would be converting your bonds to stocks at $398. $398, which today, when the price of MicroStrategy is $508, is great. Yeah. it's It's been only a few months, not even a year, and you're already looking at, what, 25% growth? That's pretty great. Now, um, what's crazy, though, is that uh, the stock uh, rose rapidly uh, after December and yes. peaked in, in February, on February yes. uh, 8th, at $1,000. Now, to be clear, um, it's not as big as some other pumps. For example, Michael Saylor in 2000, the year 2000. That was a much right. more impressive Michael Saylor. But it's still pretty incredible how fast it rose. So then you're, you're telling me that at, at this time, he also bought more Bitcoin and issued more bonds. So I, I guess he's uh, either very lucky or actually good at timing these things. But uh, because the first round of bond sales went really well uh, and he decided to, you know, I keep saying he, but I guess because it's kind of, you know, Michael Saylor's world and we're just living in it. Um, he is the one who's really pushing for the company to acquire more Bitcoin. So he he decided to do a second round of bond sales in February, right at almost the exact peak of MicroStrategy's uh, all-time highs uh, in, in stock price. So in this case, it was $1.05 billion of bonds that paid 0% interest over six years. So whoever bought these we're basically giving Michael Saylor an interest-free loan for the next six years to go speculate on Bitcoin. So someone decided to give Michael Saylor a billion dollars. Institutional, yes, investors. Institutional investors, a billion dollars over six years with 0% interest during a period of time with expected inflation. I mean, there's at least an expectation of like 2 or 3% inflation. 
So we're, we're looking at essentially a losing deal. And as you mentioned earlier, you can get treasury bonds from the government. And I think we can. it's fair to say that Michael Saylor is less trustworthy than the government of Canada or the government right. of the United States. And you would get a higher percent return with those bonds. Right. So the only reason why you would invest is because of, again, you know, these are convertible senior notes. So uh, you're, if you're an investor at this point in these bonds, you're absolutely believing you're basically betting on Bitcoin without holding Bitcoin. Uh, I believe the, the when the sale was completed in February, their stock prices were trading at $955 and the conversion was $432 per share, which Given that Michael, uh, Michael Strategy's uh, recent all-time high in stock price was thirteen hundred and fifteen, you know, that is an extremely poorly thought-out bet. And almost immediately after that sale completed, their stock prices started falling. Bitcoin prices started falling, and I believe now those uh, bonds, if you look them up on the market, uh, they're trading at about seventy percent. So yeah, over the last like three months, they've lost about 30% of value. Well, that makes a lot of sense because there's no expectation that the price of MicroStrategy is reasonably going to get above the the price at which you could cash in on that stock, which would be like, what, a $1,300 or $1,500 MSTR value, correct? That's that's when you would start right. to be able to cash out. That's unlikely to happen with a current valuation of 500 So now you're holding on to a note that guarantees you the same amount of money, but you have to wait six years. Right. Basic inflation economics would tell you that's 30%. That's the loss. Right. So so the only reason why you would hold on to these or, or buy them initially is because you thought that Bitcoin prices would be doubling, tripling, or more over the next six years. Now, one thing that was interesting was that you, you, you pinged me with an update that you found one of these bonds sitting at TD, which is a very large Canadian bank. Right. Uh, so... This, this is, I guess this is part of what makes me angry about what Michael Saylor is doing is that he's kind of contaminating traditional markets, uh, you know, stock markets, uh, fixed income markets with crypto. Because his company is essentially a Bitcoin shell company at this point, anyone who's holding onto assets related to it are exposed to the crypto market, which in this case actually includes TD Bank. So their exposure is very tiny. I believe they only have, have about a million dollars worth of shares. But a lot of the shares and uh, bonds are wrapped up in exchange-traded funds, in mutual funds, uh, you know, tech index funds. So investors in these funds might not even realize that a part of their portfolio is basically Bitcoin at this point. Right. I mean, so th th this seems kind of weird because when you have a Bitcoin ETF, it's called BTT or BTCC or something, has a very clear name to it. Right. It has nothing else. Uh, you know, if you're investing in tech, often it's going to exclude like an ETF that's just a crypto commodity. It's going to include actual companies that work in tech. But here you have a large tech company, allegedly. It's three quarters value in Bitcoin. It's most, it's more of a Bitcoin ETF than it is a tech company. And right. it's now being shoved into and, 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 and mixed with all these other assets. So it's, it's, it's quite likely, it's actually almost 100% the case that if your grandparents right now have any retirement money that's in a mutual fund and that mutual fund has any broad U U.S. Equ equities, they likely hold a bit of Tesla and a bit of MicroStrategy depending on how broad 
And that means they're holding Bitcoin. Not a lot, but they're holding Bitcoin. And that's kind of weird. Yeah. So, you know, historically, uh, crypto markets have always been their own little bubble. And, uh, you know, during the time when I got interested, it was actually hard to get into. Now it's become increasingly easier. You know, you can just go on Robinhood and buy Doge if you really want to. But at least for people who were not directly investing in crypto, it was hard to get your money connected to that. But with companies like Tesla and with like MicroStrategy uh, starting to hold crypto on their books, you know, people who invest in these companies are now exposed to crypto. And thankfully, right now, it's not exactly um, you know widespread as a practice. But God forbid if you know nothing major happens to Bit. Bitcoins and more companies decide to hold them as assets in the future, we might actually see, you know, more and more people unknowingly have their portfolios exposed to the crypto market. Every time I talk about crypto, I'm bringing up his- historical context. But again, this kind of sounds like people packaging mortgage-backed securities into retirement funds as a more stable long-term investment than uh, treasuries and bonds. And so what ends up happening is that everyone is essentially invested in mortgages on the other side of the deal. Right. And here you have a similar situation where it's like, look, we know that Bitcoin is volatile. We know it's dangerous. And yet we're all investing in it a little bit. Whether you want to consent to that or not, you're probably touching something Bitcoin. I know I am. I have an S&P 500 ETF, I believe, that Tesla is part of the S&P 500 if I'm not mistaken. So I'm touching Bitcoin in my ETF. I don't want to, but that's not my choice anymore. Yeah. And at least in your case, you, you know, you know that Tesla is doing this. So if more companies are doing it and uh, the whole point of one of these funds is that you don't have to go in and look at every single asset. It's uh, people who are very smart are actively managing it or have, uh, you know, picked those assets due to good reasons. So you'd think they wouldn't expose you to this risk, but uh, the more companies do this, the more likely it is in the future that this will happen. Right. Okay. So let's talk briefly about what might happen to Michael Saylor in the event of a serious downturn in the price of Bitcoin here. So I'm not actually sure at this point because uh, those bonds... the terms of uh, how those bonds work is not exactly uh, public. There's some details that MicroStrategy releases, but it could be that if he has a subsidiary that's holding all of the Bitcoins, as long as he can make the interest payments, which are you know, minimal uh, on a lot of these bonds, uh, it wouldn't look bad until one of these set of bonds uh, has to be redeemed. So it could be years before... Uh, Michael Saylor has to actually reveal that, oh, you know, his Bitcoin bid has gone south and he didn't exit the market and now he can't pay back the people who loaned him the money. Uh, so that's that's one possibility. Uh, if there are some kind of clause in there that allows the holder of those bonds to force a redemption if uh, the price of Michael's strategy stock dips below a certain point, we might see that kind of uh, crisis earlier. But I'm, I'm honestly not sure. You know, this is just really, really strange. Um, you know, like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's very unclear what exactly um, would happen. It seems like a crazy bet. You know, a six-year 
bond of a billion dollars with 0%, essentially what you're saying is, I don't want to take any risk. I don't want to get liquidated. It doesn't seem like there would be interest payments on a bond that, that's 0%. That, that's the whole point of the 0% bond. Like You're not getting any money during that uh, six years. So it almost sounds like what Michael Saylor convinced a boardroom is that even if we are in a bubble, that in six years we'll hit another bubble and we're going to go even higher. We're going to hit 300,000 or whatever it is. And yeah. I, I, I'm guessing that's because I, I, I hear a lot of the um, the financial uh, thinking of, of folks in the space. And that's kind of the attitude, which is like, even if it's a bubble now, I'll just wait until the next bubble. And, you know, I mean, maybe maybe it works out for him. It is it is interesting that I, I believe uh, the attitude of uh, people are actually changing. So this third round of bond offerings are no longer convertible bonds. They're just, uh, you know, the people who are loaning him money at this point just want interest payments. So uh, he just completed $500 million of a bond offering that has an annual interest of 6.125%. So that's like full junk bond territory. Right. And that's kind of what you would expect. Right. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's taken until the the Bitcoin market has dipped for uh, investors to realize like maybe it's not a good idea to continue to bet on Michael Saylor turning Bitcoin into gold. The United States has actually not approved many Bitcoin ETFs, right? I know Canada has done a way better job, or at, sorry, I should say Canada has allowed more Bitcoin and and now Ethereum, Ether ETFs, but America has not, correct? I, I believe America doesn't uh, have any Bitcoin ETFs right now. So there is a grayscale uh, Bitcoin trust and I guess some other investment vehicles like that, but they don't quite work like an ETF. So MicroStrategy is kind of the only quasi ETF, which also means that hypothetically, if you were looking at this and you were thinking, you know, this is all kind of crazy and um, you wanted to let's say, short Bitcoin, um, all of a sudden you, you have options, right? So you, you right. so the, the options market uh, for MicroStrategy is very much available to you. Uh, yes. So uh, for people who wanted uh, short Bitcoin but don't want to participate on Bitcoin exchanges because that's kind of like, you know, gambling against uh, a casino at the casino, you know, if you're right and the casino goes out of business, you're going to lose your money anyway. So for people who have a very bullish opinion on Bitcoin, because MicroStrategy has turned into this weird proxy for Bitcoin, uh, there are people who have bought options. I've bought a very small uh, number of options, just to, you know, in uh, full disclosure, but, uh, you know, it's not a lot of money. But I, I know there are other people who have looked into the same thing. But you know, it's like that is also kind of speculative too, because if you're uh, if you're buying put options, you have to be right about the timing. So you can be right about the general trend of where the company is going. You can be right about their insane fundamentals, but if they don't uh, collapse in prices before whatever um, date for those options, then you know they could expire worthless. Right. And just, just for simple terms and full disclosure, I also have a very small position um, against MicroStrategy in, in the form of put options. Um, and just to explain in the basic terms what, what options are and what, what a put is, options just allow you the right to sell or purchase a stock 
at a specific price at a specific within a specific time frame. Right. So in the case of shorting MicroStrategy, essentially what you're doing with buying a put contract is you're saying that from now until a particular date, in the case, in, in my case, I, I think I have January as the, the, the time that I've set. If the stock falls below a particular price, then I can can essentially sell that stock at that price, even though the stock is below. Essentially, what that means yeah. is without me holding any of the stock, I have this special right. It's 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 a fancy way of of shorting, but it's different than shorting fundamentally because I I put the money up front, and so I can't lose more than the cost of the contract itself, which is what you mentioned. The contract could expire completely worthless if the the the, the stock never goes below that price. I think in my case, I have something a strike price is what it's called of like half of what. what uh, Michael Saylor's uh, uh, MSTR uh, uh, um, stock is now, and again, of course, this is not investment advice. And in in many ways, this is like gambling because you don't know when it's 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 going to happen, and options are are, are complicated and, and they're not easy to 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 access for good reason because they're they're speculative and complicated. Um, I, there are traders who use options to uh, basically hedge against volatility, but for if you're not holding the underlying asset, then it's yeah, you're kind of gambling on the price of uh, what the price of the company will be in the future. Now, like this isn't just randomly like uh, people who are putting money down on um, shit coins in crypto. Uh, there is a company, they do have uh, information on how they operate that you can use to gauge the soundness of your investment. But again, you know, they're, like, there's definitely risk involved. Uh, I believe 70% of options do expire worthless. So, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's, it, it could be a potentially dangerous thing. So that's why I don't have a lot of money in that. If you're just sitting there and you're a software developer or you are a construction construction worker and you're looking to buy these options, you're not really hedging. You're 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 gambling. You know, in yeah. my case, if this if this you know if this if the music doesn't stop, if the party keeps going full blast, um, then I guess my my skills are worth a lot of money, and I'm okay. I'm very comfortable to have a very tiny amount of money expire worthless in the form of these put contracts. Um, but yeah, it is strange that right now MSTR has become the de facto ETF. I'm wondering, what do you think the SEC will will do? I mean, is is there any sort of precedent for companies doing this? Is there any example of a company filling its coffers with uh, a risky asset like this? So not uh, not that I know of. In fact, uh, the very uh, act of holding digital assets is so new that the tax laws for how do you record that on the books isn't really even uh, fully developed. I, I think the you know accountants reached out to the Federal Accounting Standards Board, which is responsible for uh, issuing official rulings on generally accepted accounting practice, you know, asked them, could you provide a, a ruling for how do we calculate the price of Bitcoins in a company's books? And their response was, not enough companies are doing this, so no, we're not going to issue an official ruling. So that's how new it is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Michael Saylor is really yeah, taking full advantage of, of new tech. He, he is a pioneer in this way. He is definitely a pioneer. <laughs> um, and hopefully one day a buttcoiner. <laughs> hopefully he'll be sitting here and talking to us and explaining to us um, how all the trickery and uh, everything works. And uh, we'll see. 
um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, uh, we're going to end this sort of short little episode now. I'm sure, uh, Frank, I'm sure you'll, you'll be back to talk more about MicroStrategy as things unfold. And depending on what uh, questions come from the audience, maybe we'll answer them, you know, you and I, maybe we'll have someone else come on as a third person to, to talk more in depth. Right. Um, this this is a very interesting um, time in history. What are you looking forward to in the next, let's say, few weeks um, as you're following MicroStrategy? What are you looking for? So the whole space has gotten so weirdly absurd that I have no idea what's going to go on in the next few weeks. So I, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, take a more relaxed view and just uh, kind of my head in and see what's going on every now and then so you know as i've been looking into microstrategy i've also been looking into uh you know how other people invest in crypto and uh, one of the things that i've noticed is that like a lot of people have become very obsessed with investing in crypto you've noticed that yeah so so the people who uh you know like like not not just in how much they show and uh, how much they believe, but how much time they spend looking at the charts. Like I have very little money in a tangentially related thing to crypto, and I kind of found myself like at one point thinking, you know, I'm spending way too much time on this. So, um, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to kind of you know maintain some distance. Uh, and I, I just think that like other people who are way more invested are spending, you know, wasting so much of their, their lives on these uh, kind of, you know, fantasies and pipe dreams and uh, tales of scammers that um, you know, I, I'm really hoping if this all cools down or collapses soon, then people's lives can go back to normal at least uh, sooner. So I have honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> Every time I meet someone who's told me they just got into crypto like six months or a year ago, I can see it in their eyes, the thousand hours they spent in the last year, like just anxiously like scrolling their phone through the charts of 28,000 different cryptocurrencies and checking all the coins and refreshing and refreshing and refreshing. Um, it's absolutely madness. And I know personally for myself, I think I lost like six months of my life um, with that. It's it's almost impossible to get your mind out of it. Yeah. Thankfully, it's been uh, quite a while, and 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 now uh, I can confidently say that I can go a few days or a few weeks without really caring about the price. Although, because the price is so reflective of the news and it kind of reverberates, it's 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 hard to really miss it. But thankfully, not being affected by it at almost at all anymore. So, so what what I hope to see, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. I guess just uh, whatever news comes out, I hope. Uh, regulators will look into this more and sooner. So I, I know there's this tendency for regulators, even if there is a giant scam ongoing, and you know, in the case of Tether uh, and weirdness in the case of MicroStrategy, they probably don't want to touch it before it uh, you know, uh, deflates on its own. So I, I'm hoping not too many people get burnt because uh, regulators will actually start looking into this actively, but I, I'm... Uh, not too optimistic, but that would be nice to, to see more regulatory attention, to see more mainstream attention on all of the problems going on with uh, crypto, with MicroStrategy, you know, with Tether, that'll be great. And on that note, I want to thank you again, Frank, for coming on and talking about this. And I want to, uh, yeah, encourage anyone else, if you want to come on, if you want to talk about this, if you have any comments, go to uh, Anchor, I believe it's anchor.fm backslash Aviv-Milner and 
You can see the podcast and you can even leave an audio reply. Go on our butt coin. There'll be a post somewhere with this episode. Um, yeah, leave a comment or just come on the show. And uh, yeah, Frank, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for having me.